hi, hello, and welcome to Oh Boy, the podcast presented by Man Repeller. I'm your host, Jay Bume, and on this week's episode, our own Leandra Medine sits down with Sally Singer, the creative digital director of Vogue.com. It's a really great conversation, and I should know because I was there too. Before we get into it, I want to thank The Newsette for sponsoring this week's episode. If you don't know about The Newsette, it's a new, free, daily mini-magazine delivered right to your inbox, packed with pop culture highlights, Instagram inspiration, style news, and more. For more info and to sign up, head to thenewsette.com. Okay, here's Leandra in conversation with Sally Singer. How much easier is it to dress when you know that you only wear like one form of skirt and one kind of top, you know? Yeah. Although I think most people arrive at their uniform and then they pretty much, if they're, if they're you know, if they have any self-knowledge, they stick with it. It, yeah. it changes season on season and, you know, year on year based on all the different things that can change. But, you know, people who like to wear soft flowing pants tend to wear soft flowing pants for right you know day and night yeah or feel their best in it Mm -hmm. they might wear other things but where you sort of go back to the where you feel your best yeah it's always really hard when the thing that makes you feel your best no no longer looks the way it used to yeah (laughs) that is really that is that is a challenge although I think I think that the thing the thing in which you feel your best it wasn't the thing so like just say just say it's a woman who's gotten older and you thought, always thought they looked their best in body con, right? Yeah. And then they're like, uh, body con after the age of, you know, whatever. pick it a is. number. Yeah. Um, doesn't look so good. But there's probably some way that's something that gives you the security and the feeling of body con and the sexiness of a body con dress um, without, and the constriction of it, which is probably what makes you feel your best without yeah. it being that same. Right bandaged thing which totally becomes a whole new appraisal of identity you have to like dig in and figure out what works for you what you liked about that I'm I'm going through it with high-waist denim right now right (laughs) high-waist denim yeah well why I'm trying to get pregnant and so I'm eating Um, a lot basically and the high-waist denim yeah like when it starts to really look like the mom jean yeah Yeah, before you're like that my bladder's not even full I should not be looking like this but maybe maybe then it's then maybe then it's like mid-calf long it's like a mid-calf dress that gives you that ease and gives you that kind of slightly higher waist it's that elevation of the waist and the and the elongation of the lower half right that's why you like a high-waisted pant so there's probably a 70s era dress silhouette that will get you through the summer that's that's good that's a good tip that's good advice I'll take it I mean if that's yeah what it is if that's what it is yeah. Oh, I, I tend towards shorts anyway in the summer because it's just so damn hot. High waisted shorts. Yeah, I know. Well, or something flowy shorts. Um, okay, so l- you are the digital director at Vogue. You have been for. I've been since two thousand and twelve. I want to say to the end of two thousand twelve, and then Hurricane Sandy occurred. So I was and I traveled a bit. So it's probably about January. Yeah, okay. 2013. And previous to that, you'd been at T Magazine? Uh-huh, for two years. And before that, at Vogue? At Vogue. Okay. For 11 years. At American Vogue for 11 mm-hmm. years. You're one of the rare talents who have been able to take a print job and turn it into a really successful digital job. Thank you. How, <laughs> how has that transition been? Uh, oh, it's been good. I mean, it's been fun. I, I think I was lucky because between being on the print side of Vogue for 11 years and coming back to Vogue at T, I oversaw the website and the magazine. So you sort of had both things going and at the, with the luxury of the scale of the New York Times website. So um, a, a big audience to mm-hmm. play with. And then I think since coming back to Vogue, it, it's, been, it's been a real, it's kind of been a fun journey. Like where do you get to innovate now? in magazines where do you get to sort of understand enjoy the essence of a magazine or a magazine brand or uh, you know so well as I do Vogue and love so much and make it something make it 
so many different things. Just allow it to sort of breathe in all sorts of different ways. And I was fortunate to come back and be able to be allowed to redesign the site and um, have, with a great team and also with that team build the social followings. And that was sort of around the time that Instagram really took off. So right. we sort of built, we used Instagram as a laboratory to try out a lot of visual strategies, just as now we can do that with Snapchat and, and vertical video. So for me, it's been really fun. Um, and I also, um, you know, we're not really separated from the print side. So I'm, you know, I'm still in the print, the meetings for the print magazine four or five days a week. So in a way it's, it, we're, we're, we're more integrated than that. So that, that's, so I haven't given all that up either. Right. What compelled you to take the job? Oh, um, actually, um, Anna Winter, uh, who <laughs> compels me to do Who's so many that? things. No, Anna sort of said when I was thinking of leaving the Times and thinking of what I would do next, um, Anna said, you know, you need to do this. Maybe you need to do this. And she was right. I mean, she was, she was right. She, uh, I, I, I'm, I thought it was, the, yeah, it just seemed like the right move. It seemed like it, and it seemed like, uh, it seemed like the challenge that I needed to have mm -hmm. to build something, um, new again. I really had enjoyed uh, building tea, uh -huh. and this is like, yeah, I like getting in and starting something. Yeah, I bet. Did you, were you interested in web? Was there a digital savvy sort of baked into your interests? You know, I'd say probably, I'm going to say no. It didn't come from that at all. Uh, absolutely not. I'm interested in storytelling, uh -huh. and I'm interested in different ways of storytelling, and I'm interested in... Um, subverting and challenging the expectations people have for what stories you can tell and where and how. And I'd always been that way at Vogue or when I was at New York Magazine before, um, always trying to sort of test the boundaries of what would be deemed, if not acceptable, what was expected, and to bring in new audiences mm -hmm. and take them through that sort of journey into, into brands that I love, whether that was New York Magazine or um, well, even the London Review of Books long before that. And folks, so this is a this is a natural extension. If you want to be able to, if you want to tell a lot of stories, and you, there's no better place to do it than in digital. I mean, we had now have so many different platforms, you know, that we can play with. Mm -hmm. There's you know, there's a website, there's the video player, there's the Instagram accounts, there, there there's Facebook Live, there's Twitter. I mean, there's so many ways. There's so many points of entry mm -hmm. into all sorts of narratives. So. If you like making content and you like telling stories and you like communicating with people, it's, it's great. It's really fun. Yeah. So it, it comes from that. I mean, you know, you could also probably give me six megaphones and I could probably like have people telling stories on a street corner on Hyde Park and that would be interesting to me too. I actually like, you know, I like, we do a lot of, well, not a lot, but we do a select number of what I call events in the real world or actual reality um, projects that then become, um, that live on digitally. We've done a number of things with Pat McGrath. Mm -hmm. um, the, Pat takes Paris where she put gold makeup in the park. Um, Pat's Diner, uh, those kinds of projects. And I love building things in the real world and making an experience that's really, really special for the people who are there. And then watching how it travels through social media as well. Right. Because it's just another way to tell a story, bring yeah. people into a story. And I think that's exactly right about media generally is that it's it's sort of anything that makes you feel and that doesn't that can't be anymore confined to just literal words on a page yeah. whether on a computer or in a magazine but you know it never really was in fashion magazines because it was always about the picture it's always about the words it's always about whether the caption went a certain way and what the pull quote was and what the refer was on a newspaper it's, I mean all of those details um, have always fascinated me, even since when I was a kid. I mean, how, who's, who's a, you know, what the masthead of a magazine was like, and then when it would get restacked, where, where it would go. I would, I, I've been obsessed with that stuff since I was a child. So all the mechanics of how you bring people in to the narrative of a brand or a magazine or whatever, fascinating to me. Right. It's sort of content optimization, but before it was called content oh, optimization, exactly. right? What does a digital director do? 
Um, well, in my role, which is as creative digital director, I oversee um, the team that works on the website, which is Vogue.com, mm-hmm. and that also includes VogueRunway.com, which is one um, channel on our site. We have a video program that I oversee as well. Um, there is an iPad or uh, tablet edition um, that uh, I also oversee in the team that works on that. And mostly I, I, I guess what I, well, you have to ask staff what my actual role is to them. <laughs> in my sense, in, in my view of it, I hope that I empower them to bring their interests and their obsessions and their sense of style and their sense of politics and their sense of relationships and their sense of the world into the office every day and make content from it. I really do trust every single person who works at Vogue.com with me. And I then try to shape maybe the narratives and how they tell those stories and maybe bring a bit more experience in the brand to Mm -hmm. it. So how to make that, take a story and make it Vogue. And then also how to take a story that's very Vogue and make it something new that Vogue hasn't seen yet. So they don't play to a safety zone. They play to something that feels right for Vogue as it goes forward. And I think that that's the kind of balance. It's like, how do you get into, how, how do you maintain the standards of the brand and expand what that brand can be? over time and in right. all different ways, whether it's, a t- again, in a tiny caption or whether it's in a tweet or however it is. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? And, you know, the this, this staff is um, definitely younger than I am and they're newer to the brand. Um, and it, I would say we just have fun. We just make a lot of things. And it's really important that we make new content, that it is not a site that we don't aggregate from other places. Um, we definitely step into arguments that are flowing through the culture where they seem right, but we step away from others, and we follow our enthusiasms. And so um, that can be in like the way we cover fashion. Like we just did a, we posted last week a video with Andrea Diacono in High Shine Swim, or with um, Perspex double cuffs because I'm obsessed with that car kind of Cara Kroninger Perspex yeah. double cuffs thing. And um, designer, the the performer designer singing Panda Song mm-hmm. on the streets of New York, and that's, I think I saw that on her Instagram. It was completely because that kind of like really hot, like red, sing, you know, one piece or high shine gold swimsuit, very kind of, I don't know, '90s Gilles Ben Simone picture, just mm-hmm. suddenly looked completely right. I mean, it might look, a bit, you know. And, and then the idea of double cuffs and perspex and sort of the big jewelry, but clear jewelry, court jewelry that disappears. Yeah. Um, Jordan Bickham styled it. And then that's the song of the summer for many of the people on my staff. They <laughs> love it to death. I loved it. And then he gave it to us after he'd gone to his high school prom on the, day the, on the first shoot, the first day of the shoot. And so that's the kind of stuff we get to do. And I really... Um, love that we make original things and we make them in New York and we make them on very small budgets and but and they are as thoughtful and considered as and have all the values and the casting and the kind of precision that I come to expect from Vogue and I think people expect from Vogue but they're just done in a new way and right. and that's that's exciting to get to work on well that's a really interesting piece of it also right is so two things. Number one, I'd love to hear a little bit about the 11 years that you spent at Vogue Print. Um, but the other thing that I think I come back to over and over again, specifically with Vogue, is that one of the fantastic things about that magazine and one of the things that always attracted me to it was this like sense of really great restraint. There was like a real tension in the magazine about this very, very specific woman that you were subscribing to be. You know, you were interested in fashion, but it wasn't your only interest. You were also curious about politics and about women's rights. And it it was this whole slew of things that sort of culminated in this language that did revolve around fashion, but wasn't actually about fashion. And there there was a sense of control about it. The problem on the internet is that you can't really control, because once you make the content, it's out there for everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean that with a capital E because it's not just the people who are buying the magazine. It's anyone who sees it. It's anyone who follows Andrea Diaconu, right? So how have you reconciled that? Well, I think think that's the, the sort of great part of doing the digital side of Vogue because you control and control and control everything you can control. You know, you try to work with the best hair and makeup and you try to work with the, you know, the, the best model for the, 
for for what you're shooting and you you know you try to never compromise on any of that you try to I'd say online we do a very we take a very buy now approach to what we shoot unless we're actually doing a collection story mm -hmm. but you you know it's the best clothes you know it's the right look every everything should be exact and then you let it happen in the world and you let see what the world sends back to you and sometimes they you know sometimes they send back things you may not have wanted but I don't care. Like it's, I mean, some of the most interesting projects we've done. It's really surprising um, what comes back. We did a shoot a couple years ago with Cast Bird of plus size. They were plus size models, but we never said they were plus size models. But models with larger silhouettes wearing bras that were C cups and above. Because I just thought there are never any lingerie pictures of bras that aren't like two triangles held right. together by candy floss and I so I wanted to do and I thought that the one one of the core items women shop for are bras that fit so if mm -hmm. we could prove that there were beautiful bras out there that had actual underwires and cups, that would be in itself a good thing and you know it's not a you know laundry is not something that's shot that much for a Vogue or for fashion magazines and we shot it in black and white and that series of portraits we put out and, it, and I think in many ways and we didn't retouch them uh, um, not cash shoots film it was not a really a retouch shoot unless if someone had like a pimple but we didn't retouch for shape at mm -hmm. all um and that series of pictures i think we had one of the most amazing receptions too i mean people absolutely loved it went everywhere in the world and nobody said that's not vogue and nobody said anything and what i was really happy about is because we never said that this was a plus size shoot we never this is just a these are just women whose bodies we loved yeah that that in itself a lot of people praised because so, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes you put stuff out there and you don't know what's going to come back and you get back a lot that's amazing and it expands an understanding of what you do and you haven't compromised anything. You're working with the best photographer, the best models, gorgeous pictures, you know. Right. And, and also, uh, but I can tell mm -hmm. you, we just got, and we, we had a really complex reaction to a series we did just it, well, it culminated on June 2nd, which is National Gun Violence Day. We did a whole series of stories, 12 stories leading up to that day of first-person accounts of people whose lives have been affected by gun violence. Can you imagine? This is June 2nd, considering what's happened since. And there was a woman who'd been a librarian at, the, at Sandy Hook on the day. There had been a woman who lost their family, lost most of her family in the Charleston shootings. There were people whose children went to a home for a play date, and oops, there was a gun in the house, and their child, you know, a, son, a son who was paralyzed from that, a person whose child, um, grown child, committed suicide with a gunshot wound, and this had followed that, that person's husband having also committed suicide with a gunshot wound before. Someone who was saying, the depression runs my family, but if there weren't guns, this wouldn't have been, this, this option would have been taken away. We did this series for 12 days. Jenny Holzer did amazing, amazing original piece of artwork for each one, three moving pieces per, per story. And on, on June 2nd, we could flood our Instagram accounts, we could flood our website, we could flood our Facebook, bring them all together. And that was a huge investment on the part of the um, culture editor, Abby Aguirre, to take people who are not writers and help shape their work in a way that's true to them to be essays to run on the website. Huge effort on the part of Jenny Holzer, who had just delivered and delivered every single day as the, as the pieces rolled into her original works of art. And that, that kind of undertaking, one, was to me breathtaking and important, regardless of how many hits you get, regardless of what it does in the world. But the amount of terrifying chatter that comes back when you attack, not the gun industry, but you just point out that gun violence exists, it's shocking. It's shocking what people write. It's shocking what comes back. This is a very strange country. How do you react? You don't. You put it out there and you let the conversation happen. You don't react. There's nothing you can write. You just, you know. You have to you let just, it happen. You have right? to let it happen. And, and, yeah, you just have to let it happen. But it was interesting. It was very interesting to see the response. It was, um, it was yeah, it was shocking to me. But it, it definitely went everywhere yeah that's how did you find those people abby had spent a few months working with um organizations who are interested in in gun violence and interested in legislation and she'd found them wow it was, it was really is a, a big effort on the part of her team and again when we 
that's that to me and we've done a number that that's just the most recent but in in on the culture side we we invest that kind of creative energy in the same way that you know on the fashion side we do when we do original mm -hmm. fashion stories or innovate in various ways in that way when you put something out there that might not necessarily be very explicitly vogue and you are scrutinized for it not being vogue what's the reaction like there um I, the reaction at vogue yeah i think that there's a i don't think we've ever put out anything that is actually not vogue so i don't we've never really had a reaction in house of like oh that's not vogue i don't think we've ever put out anything that's not vogue or nothing that's ever been expressed to me by Anna Wintour or anyone around. There was a big cultural stink when Kim and Kanye were on the cover, right? There was a big cultural stink when Kim and Kanye were on the cover of the print magazine, but that's the impact of the print magazine, right. and that's, that's the impact of that cover. And again, that was, that was Vogue, because that was the cover Vogue put out. But I'm right. saying an online, a digital initiative that, um, and there's always, you know, Kim and Kanye are, you know, fabulous and divisive figures for people who like to write in and chatter. Um, <laughs> but um, I don't think, I, I, I think that what, something that would not be Vogue online would be something that was gossipy, mm -hmm. that reported gossip. We don't even report gossip around hirings, firings in the yeah. fashion industry, even when there's really not a lot at stake, right? We don't report that and we don't aggregate from it and we don't comment on gossip. We don't comment on celebrity gossip. We don't, we don't do gossip. And um, we don't do, we really don't do anything that's, yeah, we don't do gossip. We don't do tabloidy things. We, we walk away from anything that's that. Um, we don't do sarcasm for sarcasm's sake. We don't look to take people down. And we don't look, and that to me is Vogue. Vogue is not a cynical publication. It's not a cynical act. To be Vogue is an optimistic act. You are better for having read Vogue. You feel better. You think you feel a little more cultured. The world's a little more beautiful to you, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's the impact of reading American Vogue. You don't read it to find out the world is worse than you. Even if the world is troubled, even if the world is nuanced, even if the world is complex, even if there are things going on in the world that are difficult, you are better for having read the publication, right? In print. Yeah. That, that to me is... That, that to me distinguishes Vogue um, from a lot of other publications. I mean, we all know that one reads tabloids to learn that, you know, celebrities, you know, lives are just as bad as yours, if not worse. Or you know? to pass time during yes. a pedicure. Right. <laughs> but it's that people carry coffee just like you carry coffee, or right. things have gone terribly wrong in their lives, and you, it's a cynical act to read them. Not saying we don't read them, not saying mm -hmm. people don't read them, but it is a, it's, an act, it's a cynical act, and you know it, that's right. Right. But to read Vogue is an optimistic act. It means you want to see a world that's more beautiful, more interesting, more cultured, more thought-provoking, more something right. than before you picked it up, right? And online, that we hold to that as well. With, that is key to it. And that means on the internet that you, originally, I would have thought people would say, oh, you're walking away from a lot of traffic because the internet loves you know, nastiness numbers. and silliness and, yeah. and that numbers well, are based changing. on that. Yeah. But that's changing and numbers really aren't based on that. Numbers are based on doing things that are amazing. You do something amazing that people want to look at, they'll look at it. Right. And they might look at it for a lot of reasons, but they'll look at it. But you, you have to believe that what you've done is kind of amazing. Right. And numbers are relative, right? Are you looking to capture the eyeballs of 45 million people? I don't know if it's necessary, right? When I think about Man Repeller, I mean, I would completely agree that you feel better for having read Man Repeller. Right. It's, it's your friend. It's a built-in friend that you get to put in your pocket because you have a phone. Right. Um, do I need every single person in the United States coming by? Not really, because we've built this really profound community, and it feels a lot like a treehouse. And in many ways, it sounds like that's precisely what's happening at Vogue.com. But that's what you want to have happen. I mean, it's a really big treehouse. I mean, and you want, you know, it's it's a, it's a lot of people in the world you don't know, and and, and many many more. And you, I, and I fully understand, and I like the fact that a lot of people who come to our content don't even know they're at Vogue. They don't know how they got to Vogue. They don't mm -hmm. even know why it's that they found it on. Facebook, they found it through Twitter, they found it because someone referred it, they found it because it was picked up somewhere else. They, 
they find it. They find it on someone's Instagram feed. They saw, you know, and then they get to Vogue. And if they, maybe they'll stick around a while and say it's Vogue. But I don't, I don't think they have to come to Vogue first. I want them to come to something interesting first and amazing and hopefully kind of beautiful. Right. You know, beautiful on its terms. Yeah. Um, Although the interesting thing, of course, could be Vogue, right? It could be Vogue. And we have those. And we have the diehard fans. And that's really, I mean, that's very fun. And that's like, we just did a video that posted last week with Amy Schumer and Anna mm-hmm. swapping lives. And it's been massive and probably like one of the best videos ever in terms of numbers and the like. Yeah. And But it was really fun to do it with Amy. And it was really fun to see Anna do it. And it's a good piece. It's a really good piece. I mean, you can't, you're not going to do those every week, and you're not going to do those every month, and there aren't performers who are going to want to do that. And Anna's not going to want to do that. But when you can do it, and when Vogue can be part, explicitly part of the story, mm-hmm. that's, yeah, it's good. Well, that's definitely an interesting piece of digital media, right? Is that in many ways, as an online fashion editor, editor you're also kind of a performer yourself or a talent agent. You know, we're, we're consistently scouting talent, right? Mm-hmm. We're in the business of finding influencers. I guess so. I guess you could look at it that way. I mean, I, I, mean, I think even as a... I guess I felt as a print editor um, with... You know, when I was at Vogue before with View, and like I was always looking for new faces to appear in the pictures. I was always trying to put real people into pictures, for lack of a better word. There aren't, as though models are not real people, or make models into real people by telling other stories about them. So I was always casting. I, mm-hmm. I, I remember at one point in, for View, I was casting from the weddings and the times. I would read someone who was like, had an amazing job and also was a runner, and you'd look and be like, oh, I could meet her. I was actually, I was always looking for. Um, new people to put uh-huh. into the magazine and online for sure it's the same but right. um, you're always building out a bigger and you know a bigger cast of people who are relevant for who are relevant for a lot of reasons sometimes it's because of the fault and they've built up and that's how you become aware of them through their own feeds and sometimes because they just have the look that feels right or they have the attitude that feels right or they're doing the thing that just feels right now and then it's for you to help them find a bigger audience. Well, right. You're, you're, you're either so sometimes you're casting for people who are influ, who are influencers because they're already influencers. Sometimes you're making someone into an influencer yeah. because they influence you. It's well, very good. Well, I don't mean influencer in the um, like fashion blogger right. way. What I'm saying is, you know, we're talking about the person as publisher. That's mm-hmm. very much the era that we're living through. Is people connect to other people's stories. That's what emotional resonance sure. is, and that's what media is supposed to do, is, is give you that emotional tingly feeling from the inside out. And it's very interesting to hear you talk about casting characters, essentially, for the print magazine. And I never really thought of it that way because I never worked in print, because I'm like, oh, we're all talent agents. But of course, you were a talent agent for those 11 years also. It's just that the currency has changed a bit, right? Because we're expecting these people to share their lives with us, too. We want their whole stories, and we want to connect with like the raw, vulnerable stuff. I, I think um, because for so many years I ran features and fashion news in American mm-hmm. Vogue, and because um, is well, that what you did for the full 11 years yeah, that you were there? Yeah, I oversaw the features department and the fashion news department. I, I guess I've always been involved in trying to help people tell their stories through the upfront columns or the nostalgia columns. I'm thinking of now of um, franchises that are in the print issue of American Vogue. Um, and I've, always, I've just always been interested in why people do the things they do and wear the things they wear and live the way they live. And that's always been to me the essence of what I, you know, what I want to hear, what I want from a magazine. I want to, I want to know about people. I don't want to know all their dirty laundry, but I want to understand what makes them amazing, like, and why I find them amazing. And even, I now look back because I have like these old issues of New York Magazine that have arrived in my office at Vogue from when I, this is 98. And it's so... It's actually, it's not only the characters are so similar, they're different people, but the, the, the things I looked for are so similar to what I look for now and the kinds of, I was always shooting New Yorkers as New Yorkers, whether they were, you know, super famous or not. It was always mm-hmm. like Larry Rivers in these village wearing, wearing Ralph Horn or whatever I'd stick right. him in. And it's, it was always the same values you want on the internet. Like what would, how do people actually interact in the world? Why do they wear that? Why do they eat that? Mm-hmm. What are they listening to? Yeah. And how much of that information can you pack in? 
even to a caption about them. I mean, it seems so difficult now to think like how like I was endlessly trying to put like literally all this kind of stuff into a print page. Often we were like, you had to put like three pictures on the page because you didn't have enough pages to tell right. all those stories. Now you can you tell it into so four different, different stories. Yeah, well, yeah, you can do four link stories or you can have a slideshow or you can have, you can make a video, you can do so many things. And so it's probably natural that I do this job now. Right. It's like there's so, there's so much that's interesting in the world. And there's so much more. I guess what I find fascinating is that there's, there's so much more than the, the, there's a narrow, you know, the, the internet people allows people to narrow their, you know, to know more and more about less and less, if you ask me. Like people have these narrow focus on their obsessions and they sort of forget the other 99.5% of things. And it's how do you get people to look at more and more things, to know yeah. about more and more subjects, to find more and more people. That's one of the reasons I think, on, you know, for Vogue.com, it's so important to me that we spend as much time on those culture offerings as we do on living with the weddings as we do on fashion because I, I want people to bump up against gun, the gun violence issue even though they may have come to look at a swimsuit, you know, or you, know, they, I, you, you want people to keep bumping up against that which they don't know, if, if you can. I'd like to thank the Newsette once again for sponsoring this week's episode. For those who don't know, the Newsette is a new, free, daily mini-magazine that delivers the day's trending topics, style news, pop culture highlights, and Instagram inspiration right to your inbox. They're the perfect way to stay in the know on the go, and they keep you updated on what you care about, whether you're on your morning commute, in the office, or at the gym. They only report on positive news, no hard-hitting news or political updates, so that you start your day on a positive note and not obsessing over the end of our society. They include fresh editorial content in each issue based on their monthly theme, which is perfect for reading while sipping your morning latte. On Mondays and Fridays, they uniquely feature the morning and nightly routines of top girl bosses, including some folks who have been on our show. Don't be left out in the cold. Stay informed. Sign up now at www.thenewsette.com. Okay, back to the conversation. Louis C.K. has this really, really interesting idea about the internet and the age of the internet we're living through. And he says that we've graduated from elementary school when everything is like, oh, cool, what's that? When the internet was new. And you, it, I mean, that's sort of what established this as the information age is because there was so much available to you and you were so excited about all of it because the internet felt so new. But we're now living through the high school years where the kids who love leather jackets and talking about literature hang out on the lockers on the sixth right. by the lockers on the sixth floor and there's it's it's such a linear and um small view in a way that it hasn't been before and it's really diminishing what it meant for this to be the information age right because we're we're sort of like living we're living out i think a lot of the apple naysayers biggest fears which is that through the era of personalization, we are going to forget about humans. Well, we're certainly going to forget about civic responsibility yes. or any notion of, yeah, the civil society. Yeah. yeah, I should say humanity. It is. It's. I mean, so that means that if you are lucky enough to work in digital media, as I am, it, you are obligated to kind of keep thinking, how can I broaden this conversation? How can I Absolutely. keep people get people out of their safety zones how can I surprise them because if they're not surprised they're going to lose interest anyway so like you've got to keep and how do you keep expanding people's horizons whatever that means to them and for some people that means you know I don't know thinking about what other people wear as opposed to just what they wear who knows you know and for some people it might mean thinking about what street style looks like in Nairobi because they've Mm -hmm. never thought about and none of their friends have ever been there you just have to keep pushing it right and through whatever you know and remain true to you know the the brand that you're working for but that's absolutely it's essential it's essential it's it's almost working against the algorithms because the algorithms only tell you what's already happened they don't tell you what hasn't happened and everything's about what hasn't happened and the algorithms don't take into consideration actual heartbeats like a click is not a person no and and they send you backwards they're about predictive behavior and 
what really changes things is non-predictive behavior. It's what we don't know. So That's I, exactly I, right. I think that that to me is the big challenge of what we do, much more so than how many clicks or how many views or how many of that. I think if you get that right, everything else will follow. It will grow. It will happen because that's, I, 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 I don't think, I think people want to be amazed and they want to be surprised and they want to be provoked for the right reasons and, um, and they want to feel alive. And the only way you can, and there's a way to do that that's not cynical, that isn't about the worst impulses. There's a way to do it that's about the best impulses. Yeah. And I mean, you only have to look back at who's made an impact on the media in the last however many few decades done that. Look at Oprah. I mean, look at, that wasn't based on the worst impulses. That was based on the best impulses, right? The brands that grow that people believe um, they had a real resonance in their life mm -hmm. are, are optimistic brands. They're not cynical ones. Yeah, that's a wonderful perspective. And, and I believe very, very true. And I think is a lot of what I aspire towards with Man Repeller and it's something we're working on consistently. When you were taking this job, were there any apprehensions, specifically because it was a web job and we were sort of living in the crux of fashion blogger time? Um, I don't know if there was apprehensions in that sense. I am a very private person and I myself have no social media for myself mm -hmm. and I, um, I certainly wouldn't have taken, I, I, I'm not apprehensive about it, but I think some people, some people do social media jobs or actually work in fashion because they've decided that they're the story, right? It's different than if you're starting a business as you did and starting a brand and you were the story because it's an individual thing, but there are people who work for organizations such as I do, such as Vogue, um, but not at Vogue, not anyone at Vogue, but we know this and mm -hmm. they kind of at some point think they're the story. You know, Karl Lagerfeld isn't the story, they're the story. And I have never believed that for myself, nor do I, I don't, that's not interesting to me. I've always, um, I mean, I started to write at some point in the first person at Vogue, but I'd always written in third person for a long time, even with the big celebrity cover stories. And there was one where I just thought I can't force these transitions. I just got to put myself in the scene. <laughs> and it was a shift. It was a real shift. Like, ah, oh, you're writing the first person. Um, and now, of course, everything's in the first person. But... I, 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 wouldn't have, I wouldn't have taken a digital job to become a digital creature in that sense. Um, but luckily that's not what my job is, nor does it have to be because it's a, because Vogue is the creature. I mean, Vogue is right. what I'm doing and every, and the people who work for me are, reflect that and some of them have a, huge followings online for themselves and some of them big Instagram accounts and they and they're very much out there and I love that mm -hmm. super ambassadorial it's great it animates the brand it connects them to their readers but it's for me to give them a platform for them to find readers I've had a lot of readers you know I've, I've written a lot of pieces I, it's, it's for me to bring up a, this crew of people and let them find that audience did you feel like your peers wouldn't respect you as much there's this big conversation or there has been in the last 10 or so years I would say about digital media legs of print magazines not commanding the same respect that their you print know, comrades oh, do. I, I never thought about that. Um, no, I never thought about that but I don't, I don't think I've ever based any decisions on like what other people are going to perceive in that way. I don't think that way. I, what I think about more is you know when we redesign the site that it's going to work and my my big imposter syndrome moment there, and I've had many imposter syndrome moments in my life, most of my time, was that I don't code. So if it didn't work, if it was like a cursor blinking on a black screen, I couldn't sit there and type code, you know, and like write a bunch of algorithms and like get the thing to work. And that if you've always been an editor who can write, edit, crop, cut the picture, like just not being able to code. So helpless. Was, yeah, that, that I think perplexed me. And so every time we've done a, a, a new product or, or revised a product like the um, Vogue Runway app, I just want it to really work when it works. I mean, I have people I trust at Nihon Kenton, amazing people who know how to do that. And I trust that what they do, it's going to work. It's always going to work. But my my big issue isn't like, oh, how are people perceiving me? It's just like, will the thing work? Will it deliver the shows faster than anything will ever deliver the shows? Will it, will it, will it do the thing I want it to do? 
that's, that's kind of it. That's the whole point. And are the people who work for me happy? Do they like doing what they're doing? Right. They feel like, is it fun? I mean, and, and yeah, is it fun and does it work? And what's next? Like, what are we gonna do next? I mean, that's kind of, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Did people think I lost out? I don't think, no, I, I never no. thought about that. <laughs> it just, it never even occurred to me that that would be a consideration. I think that's a really that's powerful kind of interesting. thought. <laughs> and it's probably very telling about the reason you've seen so much success in your role. It, it, there's, you have a very healthy relationship with your ego, it sounds like, in that it really doesn't get in the way of decisions that you make. No, no, I, well, it, 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 I don't know. It's very hard for me to judge whether that's right. It does, at, at, at that conscious level, it doesn't. turn into like a psycho. God knows at an unconscious level what's going on. But at a, at a con- no, I mean, I, 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 I come into work every day and I, we try to make the best site and videos and experience for, for Vogue. And it's, it's a real joy because it allows us and it's a, you know, good sized team to imagine every day the vogue we want to exist in the world. Like uh, when I took the job, this is what I thought. I grew up obsessed with vogue, right? Mm-hmm. And I spent I would spend the whole month waiting for vogue to come in the mail or to land on a newsstand in the years when I couldn't subscribe, maybe when I was even younger. Um, and then I'd spend the next 29 or 30 days like going over that issue and just waiting for the next one, just waiting for the next one. And this is really back in the day when there were like front of book columns called Hair Now. Like, you know, and I'd clip everything and I'd like make, I make binders and albums of my Vogue where I put like, you know, I'd op- like I had a well, like there'd be like, yeah. you know, the- it's really kind of weird. Um, and so when I came back, it allowed me to think every day, what was I thinking was going to come on those other 29 days? If Vogue could come every day, what would have come day right. three, day four, day five? And that's the way I look at Vogue.com. It's like I- Vogue happens every day now. It happens every hour. What could it tell me? Because it was like my best friend when I was a kid. Right. You know, my best friend from afar, my most glamorous other friend. I had Mm -hmm. very good friends in real life, but I had a relationship with this imagined friend. And now I get to think about it every hour. And so do not just me, everyone who works there. Yeah. It's so funny that you say that because when people ask me about Man Repeller and what I was thinking, I'm always like, I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but when I was younger, I watched Sex in the City with so much passion and for a reason that's like really still from an awareness perspective, unbeknownst to me, those women felt like my best friends. Like they helped me navigate heartbreak and frustration and lost friendship. And they were all fictitious, they weren't real. And so when I set out to build Man Repeller, when I realized that I was capable of actually building something, I was like, how do I recreate that experience online? And how do I do that with people who are real, who are actually there on the other end, listening and responding? So that's, that's a really interesting piece. It is, I mean, that is, that, that is the magic of magazines or media or, and, and now you can do it. You can kind of create it, and, but then you have to be true to it. Yeah. That's really the thing. And you have to be, you have to be true to it and you have to really be careful with what else gets in. I mean, that's around advertising as you probably yes. think in native, like what's allowed in and what's you, not. What's not. What's, what's not, how do you make all the right decisions to preserve that magic space to it, where it feels essential? Like if it were to disappear, it'd be a real issue. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That's, yes. that's what you have to create. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a fashion editor? Well, you mean in terms of? Generally speaking, if someone asked, someone who had no idea what you did or what the internet was, asked what you do. I mean, I definitely, um, well, I'm not a fashion editor in that I pin clothes and as, I'm, as, uh, as the fashion editors who function as stylists on shoots. Mm-hmm. I've never been that, and I couldn't do that. Um, but I, yeah, I would, I would say that I'm, I'm someone who sees narrative in clothes. I'm not a features editor who turned my mind to fashion. I'm, I, I do, the fashion part of the job and thinking about fashion, it probably... Um, it's a place where it's it's a it's a comfort zone and an authority that I have and that I um, turn to while at Vogue. It doesn't mean that I I didn't know I didn't. It's not something I trained to do. It's mm-hmm. not where I came from. But when I started at British Vogue and started working on style pieces, it just became clear that this is 
the job that I'd given myself for a long time since I was a little kid. It was like what I was kind of meant to do. Right. And I don't think, I mean, it's not for everyone. Like a lot of people, a lot of people look at fashion and they see what works for them and what works, you know, fashion is for them sort of what they'd wear or wouldn't wear or what looks interesting or what they wish they could wear. None of that has any real bearing. I mean, what I wear has very little to do with the narrative of fashion. The narrative of fashion is a whole other bigger narrative. And part of it is, and a great deal of it comes from the runways and, and sort of understanding the narratives of the runways and what they're bringing up. But a lot of it comes from kind of understanding where that's going to go next and seeing it before it actually happens and maybe where it should have gone, where it should go, and trying to influence that conversation. And that's super important to what um, I ask of the people who work at fashion on Vogue.com and the way we think about fashion. Because we're not, with the exception of runway stories, we're, we're shooting clothes that are for sale now. Mm -hmm. The stories we need to tell are stories that we are feeling regardless of whether they come down the runway. And they're usually the stories we, they come from the same impulse that leads designers to do their next collections. So it's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different stream. And I do, I do think it can shape the conversation of fashion. I think that that's really important. That, and I felt that Vogue's always been there. Vogue and print has always been there. Grace's stories. Um, have always, you know, Camilla's stories, Tawny's stories, they've always predicted what's going to happen next. That's, a, that's because all of those ladies, and Phyllis Posnick for um, beauty, they all have an inner narrative that they're always working through, and they're always looking for something. Mm -hmm. And then they get it confirmed by the runways. And I, I have that, too, and, I, and so do the people who work for me. Right. What other stuff do you read? Oh, um, I read a lot. I mean, in what, in what way? I mean, where do I get my news? I get my news from the New York Times and the Guardian. Um, mm -hmm. But magazines, other sort of like curio cabinets mm -hmm. of curiosity. Well, I mean, I, I, I have, I have um, quite conventional and possibly um, middle-aged, you know, reading tests. I read the New York Review books, or at least look at it, make, you know, clock it. Um, I read The New Yorker. Uh, I will start with the fiction. I read a lot of fiction. Mm -hmm. um, what else do I read? I, I read a lot of fiction. I mean, a lot. Like, like I can tell you that the, and, and of all stripe, from quite, you know, esoteric to canonical to just new and um, fun. Like, I can, t I can tell you that, like, the new Ann Tyler spin on a Shakespearean narrative, which is on, I think, Hogarth, was released today. The download came today. I think I bought and started Kathleen Shine's book on the weekend. I read a oh, lot wow. of fiction, probably three, four novels a week. Oh, wow. So a lot. I'm so impressed. Lot Where do you find that time um, with a full-time job on the internet that doesn't sleep? Well, you know, before you go to bed in the morning. I'm reading, my, I have a son who's very into graphic novels who has me reading Watchmen now, which is it's, it's quite intense. It's quite a difficult book. Kind of amazing, though. If you love narrative, it's, um, it's stunning. It's yeah. stunning the way that time shifts in it all. It's an amazing book. Really amazing. So I was reading that on Saturday, but I haven't finished it yet. Do you look at anything else on the internet? Um, you mean website-wise? Sure. I look at a lot of music websites. I, I definitely look at Pitchfork. Mm -hmm. um, I look at Brook and Vegan every day just to see what tickets are on sale, what's going on. I do look at art form mm -hmm. online, just to particularly the left-hand column where they just say news, hiring, I don't know. It's like a news check-in with the art world. Um, what other websites do I look at? A lot. I would say that's, I mean, that's really what I check in with a lot. I try to see what music's coming through town. Mm -hmm. Sometimes consequence of sound, but less on that front. Um, I like the needle drops reviews. A lot of music stuff. Cool. A lot, a lot of music stuff. Because a lot, and actually that's, that's not, it would have always been that way, but a lot of what we do that crosses culture and fashion and beauty comes from music. Also, so it makes great. sense. Mm -hmm. You know, it helps What's, us. What is your perception on the fashion blogger and the sort of genesis of this individual, the self-branding individual who started as potentially a person as publisher evolved to become a, a, 
a mobile slash social celebrity and the the sort of progression of where reality star television stardom has gone. Well, I think those are maybe I probably have different reactions to that. I think the fashion the fashion bloggers. Um, from the way I see it, were the super fans, and I love super fans. They were the people who were just going to do anything to be in a show, or to think about a show, or to think about people who get to go to shows, and to put themselves in the conversation of fashion. And again, I love a super fan. So to me, that uh, you know, in the early days of this, it was really exciting to think about people who are so motivated to tell the story of their style that they will do it any which way. And I and. It's very exciting. It was yeah. fun. It was very uh, honest. Very honest. And, and, you know, if you're someone who maybe ran fashion features for 11 years, I mean, it is just fashion features, like, of the best sort, right? So um, I did love that. I find it, I would say I only found it more difficult when I can see people who, whose desire to be part of the world, fashion world allows them to be bought by the fashion world, where they become product placement for not designers they love, but maybe designers they wouldn't necessarily wear. I don't don't love people changing their clothes between shows 9,000 times. I love street style. We do tons of street style, but I love it when, it's, when it is honest and I get tired of it when it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that feels old right now. It felt exuberant for a moment, um, but it felt maybe exuberant at a different time in fashion. It's, it's a funny time in fashion. I think now it's not an exuberant moment, period, in the world. I mean, with what's going on in England and our elections. This is not an exuberant moment. And I think fashion is something that can be a source of exuberance and not diversion, but actual pleasure. It can make the world more interesting and more beautiful and more, but it's got to come from a real place. It can't come from the cynical gesture of being paid to wear something. And I feel that on the red carpet as well. You want to see real style right now, right? You want to actually see people have real style wearing the thing because that's kind of all that's going to matter. So that aspect of the blogger, that, that aspect I find difficult. On the other hand, I understand that people needed to grow businesses and needed to, in a shrinking media landscape and in a shrinking job market, create jobs for themselves. And I'm fully there for anyone who works and figures out a way to earn money. It's a good thing, you know? I mean, because that's the terms of living in a capitalist society. You kind of have to do it, like, because right. that's the world we live in. So I have a complicated reaction there. But I would say always, um, I love the idea of people thinking, I want to be in this so badly, I've got a story to tell in this. That's great. That's the most, that, that, that's fun. Like, that's the point, right? Um, in terms of reality TV, I, I think reality. I think, I you know, it's, I I think reality TV has taken many forms and done many things. I think it's, um, I think it, it's become a way for people to think, to have the experience you had watching Sex in the City, to have that experience with characters. And maybe those characters weren't being written as fictional characters for TV for a period. Maybe TV was too caught up in crime dramas or gangster narratives or other things, even good TV, to allow people just the simple ability to watch people navigate domestic crises. I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I don't actually own a TV. But, and so I've never seen shows like Modern Family and the like. I know mm-hmm. people love that. But maybe scripted TV didn't seem real enough. And so the sort of semi-real world of reality TV has become a place where people can see enacted emotional dramas at a very fabulous or whatever scale that feel tangentially right. connected to what they're going through. I mean, I can only imagine that that is the appeal of the Real Housewives shows mm-hmm. or even the Kardashians or something, that basically they're watching people sit around and try to figure out how to deal with errant boyfriends or you know, weight gain or loss or... I don't know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, and, in many ways. And it used to be Sex in the City, and now it's that, and there maybe hasn't been a scripted show that people are identifying with in that way. But, you know. Because of our access to reality, because of the fact that we follow these people, these bloggers, right. these mommy bloggers, these personal style bloggers, right. and you become part of their narrative because they're sharing it with you. Right. 
I think there'll be a, this. This is a phase, and then there'll be another phase. There'll be some other way to tell these kinds of stories, and people will get, or there'll be a kind of sifting, and people who really have interesting narrative voices will stay, mm -hmm. and others won't. I do think, um, I do think, you know, in this age, it's the lux the luxury of privacy probably will at some point take hold again for people that to have not been part of it to not be searchable to sort of just be quiet in the world will have a kind of appeal well, as well and see that's exactly it privacy was never really considered a luxury but it is very much the new luxury and that's something that Eddie Sleman has proved over and over again exactly yeah for sure Eddie and I would say Raph as well I think yeah. of as very yeah so I mean but that you know that's 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 just another way to do it, and that you know, people who maybe wouldn't have had access, you know, needed to expose mm -hmm. themselves to have access. Again, I don't, I don't blame anyone for wanting to create the job they want to have in the world. I think it's like, why not? But I, you know, I don't actually like. I'm not great with TV because I don't. I, I, I watch series after they've finished. Like I'm waiting for Silicon Valley season three to ever be released on iTunes because I haven't, my, my <laughs> sons have watched it. They seem to have access to somebody's is it Netflix account. Is, there, is it Netflix or HBO? Maybe. They have access, but mm -hmm. I, I don't have access. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah, well, when you're watching a show while it's happening, it also makes you feel less like you control your calendar, in my opinion. That's usually why I wait. Because right. I'm like, I'm gonna watch this on my own terms. Yeah, well, I literally don't have like TV or any of those subscriptions, but I do. But it, you know, then I catch up and I watch the whole season. So yeah. I, you know, I've watched Girls and all those things. Um, just before we wrap, I'm going to ask the question that I'm sure many young women who are listening to this podcast are listening for, which is, what advice do you give to a young person who is very hungry to enter the industry? Hmm. Well, I would probably depend how young the person is, because I think the industry is changing and changing and changing so fast and so rapidly. It's, it will be a different place in uh, two years. It'll be a different place in five years. You know, so I would say to a very you know young person who's got some time, like someone starting college, watch it. Just watch from afar, but watch it. You know, um, you know, read Vogue Runway, read WWD, but then and see what happens, because mm -hmm. I think you know. The consumer's changing, the role of the designer's changing, the role of magazines are changing, everything's changing, right? The role of the blogger's changing, it's all changing at every, and how it shakes out is probably a bit unclear. So that I would say. So I don't know exactly what the right points of entry are now because I don't think we know yet what they will be a few years from now. But then I'd say the bigger thing I would do is to not actually think about wanting to work in the industry. I'd say this is for someone who's in college or in high school or something, it still has some time to figure out who they are. And this might be based on um, the way I live my life, which might be eccentric and useless to other people. But I would say really study something and understand something that isn't about fashion that matters to you, whether it be politics or economics or art history or um, film or mathematics, anything. Be really interested in something. Like, train your brain to work hard, to think through complicated arguments, to, you know, to, to not just, you know, to do close reads, you know. Maybe not of text anymore, because that might be a kind of old way of doing literary theory, but like, of something. Like, yeah. really know something. Know it really well. Know it intensely, and then, and follow fashion. But fashion is never going to be that alone. You've got to marry it to something else, a, a bigger landscape. You have to understand how fashion is one text in a culture that's got a lot of text going on in it, and you have to be able to place it in it. So if you really want to be successful in this industry and know some, have a lot more than just this on your plate. And I think that's what you see if you think of an Eddie Slimane or Raph. They have really deep interests that are, they could leave fashion and they could, you know, a photographer, advisor, right. they could do a lot of other things. And their genius as designers is understanding the world in which their clothes sit. And you have to understand the world. Do not, so many people I hear, they just want to study like business or merchandising or you'll learn merchandising on the job. Don't study merchandising, yeah. study literature. Like merchandising you'll figure out. And I do think in people who are in the position to hire people, 
are looking for interesting people. They're not looking for someone, you know, who's just done this one thing. And it might, you know, and it, it might be that study fashion and learn how to make clothes. Very few people know how to make clothes anymore. And that is a, that teaches you a lot right there. Yeah. It is always the people who understand that fashion is a language that we use to connect with each other and with the world around us that I believe see the most success. I think that's really fantastic advice. Thank you so much, You're Sally. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.